Hello, my name is Elmira, I am from Kazakhstan, and I study in social anthropology program at Central European University. And I'm Grace, I'm from the US, and I'm in the Nationalism Studies program. In this podcast, we're putting a spotlight on student research that explores historical, cultural, and sociopolitical issues related to Central Asia. We will also play with our positionalities as insider and outsider, both culturally and academically. With these different perspectives, we'll try to untangle common assumptions or cliches about the region. Every episode features the work of a student guest, and together we'll explore the questions that drive their research forward. So we have two guests today. These are our classmates, Thais and Alexander. Yeah, and thank you for coming and joining our project. I think that was an interesting conversation we had in class, and I think it's a good point to continue those discussions. So let's recap. Which discussion are we talking about? What was the topic in class? Yeah, that was a topic on famine in Kazakhstan, and I think that was a good discussion because we kind of um, went out of the country to the regional um, level. So that's why we decided to talk about this in terms of region, Central Asia or Central Eurasia altogether. And that kind of shows how the Stalinist politics, right? So we are zooming in in this particular historical um, period, how they were widespread, let's say, in the whole Central Eurasian region. Yeah. So tell us about yourselves, how you're interested in this topic, in the Caucasus. Uh, I'm Alexander. I am uh, an American. Uh, I work on modern Circassian history at CEU. I'm a comparative history student. But a lot of my interest is in the Caucasus more broadly, both north and south. I work on a lot of genocidal peoples that have experienced genocide. Uh, so I was naturally drawn to the conversation because a lot of what we talked about was the definition of um, the Kazakh famine. Is it a genocide or not? Uh, this is probably one of the most interesting conversations I had in the last semester, so I'm actually kind of excited to get back to it. Same. <laughs> it was yeah. a good one. Hi, so I'm Taish. Um, I'm an international relations student at CU, um, where I'm doing the two-year MA program. Um, I'm more concerned with uh, contemporary stuff in my research and, you know, academic uh, work. Um, but all of these things kind of come in a lot as historical legacies that current um, politics deals with. So I work a lot on the Caucasus as well, um, on the Abkhaz issue, on the Georgian Ossetian conflict. Um, I've also recently started digging more into the Karabakh or Artsakh conflict. And in all of these cases, like international memory politics has a lot you know, links back to, to narratives of genocide it matters a lot in these relations, but also more generally, I'm very interested in um, state formation and nation formation, which has in these cases a lot to do with um, forced resettlement, uh, population transfers, and basically the creations of the nations that we have today. Um, my name is Elmira, and I'm studying at Social Anthropology Program. But uh, for the famine topic, I'm interested as, yeah, as a citizen of Kazakhstan, but also uh, I have this personal uh, story from my ancestors who were part of this protest. So I will, yeah. Why don't you tell it. us about that now? Right. Your, okay. Your family story. Um, so in... 1932, if I'm not mistaken, or 31, my grandfather, he was studying in Samara, 
and he got this letter from home from his father that asked him to come back to, Kaz uh, to Kazakhstan and when he came back he realized that there is um, yeah this crazy situation happening like people dying they don't have food they don't have their like means of um, livelihood and stuff like that so many people were just leaving many people were just moving out and like fleeing the country or that region let's say so they decided to move and there were five families so approximately 20 something people and they moved to first to Siberia then to um, the place all ah, right it was Kemerova it was this booming uh, industrial city and then after that they took train and they went to Kamchatka so mm -hmm. the point is that this story is recorded by one of the participants let's say that's my uncle who was eight at the time and then who later became an ethnographer and he kind of documented this whole journey oh, so is this what got you into uh, ethnography and no no actually i discovered that before and yeah well that is interesting point that that is like family uh, legend uh, what about your uh, interest and what about your research? How yeah. did you end up with this interest, let's say? So the topic of the famine, I didn't hear anything about it for the first uh, probably year, maybe even two years when I was in Kazakhstan. Um, so then when I understood kind of what had happened in the scale, I was really shocked. And um, there is a movement growing in Kazakhstan um, to recognize this in new ways. And that is, I think, a good topic to discuss. Alexander, you said you brought up the word genocide and and you said you're comfortable using it in the, in this case, um, Circassian, Circassian genocide. And I'm fairly, I think in class I was the most comfortable using the word genocide right. to describe the events uh, described in Hungry Step. And it's such a good book. That, yeah, you know. definitely. Okay. In 2008, a book came out called The Hungry Step by Sarah Cameron, who's an American historian. Um, it was published, or it was translated then into Russian and Kazakh, um, and became a big talking point in Kazakhstan as well, especially um, with these translations, and they became uh, more widely available. It's kind of considered the first major English language work uh, treatment of this subject. Uh, the famine has been, it has been studied uh, by Kazakh scholars, of course, but it um, kind of didn't get a lot of attention from um, outside researchers. Um, but then, yeah, there was The Hungry Step. There was another book called Stalin's Nomads. It's very good by a German historian, uh, Robert Kindler. Some big ideas that she discusses uh, are that while Stalin's economic goals or the goals of the five-year plan were not successful, um, a secondary, or not, not even secondary, but a, um, a less explicit goal was to sort of establish a unified Soviet identity or install the language of Soviet nationalism uh, in Central Asia. And in Kazakhstan in particular, Nomadism had been deemed anti-Soviet, anti-communist, uh, backward way of life. Yeah, so I would say that uh, this policy was also part of the modernization policy and this whole like Bolshevik approach and the revolution itself was about bringing like people to a new level of um, 
I don't know, civilized life or whatever. So I think that was the main like problem in, in, in this approach, because eventually what were the policies? That was like part of collectivization um, thing. Uh, people in Kazakhstan, they were nomads. And the point was that, for example, referring back to my great grandfather's father's history, I just mapped the territories, how they moved from uh, summer um, um, herding territory to winter one, and it would be like 200 kilometers. Mm. So the places that you would call home in, in our kind of normal situation, right? We would call like our apartment or neighborhood or stuff like that. The place they called home were 200 kilometers, mm. the square meters, like how can how consistent were these migrational patterns like were they going the same route every year it all depends on nature so um i think they might also moved um yeah from north south or uh, mm -hmm. east west but basically they were moving from colder places to uh, hotter places and back mm -hmm. And and when I understand that the kind of territory that you would call your home are 200 kilometers, I was amazed. Yeah. So my contemporary um, imagination of my home is very small. Yeah. So the point was that when uh, Soviet Bolsheviks, like um, Soviets came to the steppe, they realized that they cannot control those people. They could move whenever they wanted. And the point was that they wanted to sedentarize to um, change their lifestyle to sedentary uh, lifestyles. And the idea was that those people had to pay taxes with wheat. They, um, yeah, they should be in this collective um, um, colhoses. Mm -hmm. And the thing was that people could not, the wheat and uh, the agriculture wasn't their means of production, wasn't their lifestyle. And the, the point was at some, at some level, uh, the, the absurdity at some level uh, turned to that people were selling their cattle mm -hmm. to buy wheat and to pay taxes. Yeah. So eventually they got kind of out of any kind of resources. Also, um, um, let's say livestock is a major source of wealth. Yeah. So if the price is devaluated by these procurements, uh, suddenly you've got an entire population that's impoverished. And also uh, the climate wasn't good at those two years. So you're always dependent on uh, the nature, how it behaves. And at that point, I think that was the most like crucial um, problem for people there. And eventually it ended up with I don't know, you remember the numbers? Like, I know that Kazakhstan... How many people died? Yeah. Uh, most people say it's around a million and a half, one and a half million. And there's a percentage of the ethnic Kazakh population. What is that? Um, between a quarter and 37%. Um, and this is significant. This is almost always mentioned when you talk about death count because this was the highest loss as far as percentage of the population. And also around 1 million, they fled the country. So yeah. people got widespread all around the country. And there are a lot of diasporas now in Turkey, in Afghanistan, in Iran, China, in, in China and stuff mm -hmm. like that. That is the, let's say, tragedy. But let's go to the genocide. Why, yeah. why, for example, in Kazakhstan, people did not uh, acknowledge this for so long? Yeah. 
Well, okay, to start with that, um, Robert Kindler in the book I mentioned, Stalin's Nomads, he had a, a reason that I found really compelling. Cossacks killing Cossacks. Right. <laughs> I can say... No, okay, I'll say it. No. I can say everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're the Cossack. Okay. Um, when it comes to a debate over genocide, um, there is pressure to have kind of clear-cut perpetrators and victim groups. Um, that is very hard to do in this case because uh, Kazakhs were often complicit in the persecution of other Kazakhs. And this was this happened for many reasons. Uh, a lot of people were coerced. A lot of people might not have um, known what they were doing or the full impact. Um, some people might have been motivated by um, ambition or uh, a commitment to Soviet ideals. There was a, a wide range of reasons why people um, participated in this. But that makes the memory politics of the event pretty complicated. Tais, do you want to say anything? What do you think about that? Well, I think there's there's a lot of problems here. And I think that we you, we have the tendency to want to impose simplistic narratives from like with interest in the present onto the past. And that's partially unavoidable. But I think what is just like a very large danger in this case is to portrayed as is often done with a lot of cases in the post-Soviet sphere as a plan which was genocidal in its intent and in its you know in its planning from from beginning to end was executed in which there was one single Soviet center which was largely you know sort of still kind of post-imperial still imperial uh, Moscow which was Russian and thereby imposed its will genocidally upon all the sad peripheral peoples who had no agency because they were sad peripheral peoples which is, as you said, not the case, but not only, as you said, through their own, the participation in their own demise, which is a terrible phrase to use, but mm -hmm. that's kind of what it ends up boiling down to in very convoluted ways. But also, I think it's very important to realize that, like, you know, this happened this way in Kazakhstan at that particular time, um, in that particular phase of Soviet history, which was the first five-year plan. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not as if, Stalinist biopolitics, or broadly, more broadly, Soviet biopolitics, were always like that in every single place. They have this split mind between, oh, these people are primitive communists, they haven't been spoiled by capitalism, they must be our, our perfect students, so to say, versus they're the most backward obstacle to progress. Hmm. But in a very perverted way, I think, there's this irony to socialism that it's all based on very egalitarian good intentions, but it ends up doing a lot of destruction. So it's not... It's not the biopolitics of Nazism where it has, it wants to preserve a status quo in a way that I think most contemporary humans find completely abhorrent. Mm. Um, but it wants to, so it doesn't want to change or f fix certain biological categories, but it wants to propel everyone into the future, into you know a great future that then does a lot of harm. Um, and also, Kazakhstan is just obviously like a, a border territory um, and an imperial colony, and that makes things a lot more complicated. Hmm. I think an issue here is always that uh, when you use the word genocide, you think of the Holocaust. Yes. And when you agreed. deal with the Holocaust, you have uh, the most organized, kind of self-consciously cultured state and people in the world kind of dedicating themselves to the project of exterminating civilians. So in when dealing with the Holocaust, you really do have this what's essentially an engineering project. And 
I, I think it, you can get tripped up when you deal with the emotions of the Holocaust rather than the practical policies of the Holocaust. Can I add a little bit, yeah. um, a note, uh, why are we discussing this word particularly? Because, uh, so the, the point of um, research and, let's say, politicizing of this uh, historical event in Kazakhstan was somewhere in 90s, like there were publications, there were books, and um, like it suddenly became uh, like open for people to know what was this famine and why it happened. For example, I remember my father was reading a book in, in Kazakh and he was like hating Galashokin, who was this mm. communist um, um, leader in, in the region, and like Galashokin became this number one like demon in, in Kazakh, uh, let's say, understanding of the um, problem. And then I think it was this kind of wave of, um, let's say, finding your independence, your sovereignty after the collapse of Soviet Union. So these questions become very, very important in 90s, in maybe, yeah. In the very early 90s. Yeah, yeah and and then and then the case of uh, Galadamor in uh, Ukraine became this success story. So Ukrainians managed to like address this problem and to kind of raise uh, raise the let's say the question of who is uh, who is the perpetrator uh, who whose fault was that yeah and and to say that um, what's happened with Ukraine is a success you need to consider who is calling it a success so I would argue that Kazakhstan the government at least is seeing it more as a big red flag like look they got invaded they lost cream like uh, Crimea and northern Kazakhstan is still vulnerable in many ways. So I would say that for them, this was like, okay, we don't want to go that route. Um, but about, yeah, the 90s, um, there was, there did seem to be this brief period of, okay, let's make this part of our national story. Um, they made plans for monuments in Almaty, put a plaque saying, okay, we're going to build a monument here. Uh, President Nazarbayev issued a investigation and actually called it a genocide on one occasion. What's um, the Kazakh word for genocide? Is, that, is it Russian. Yeah, take it from Russian. Okay. Um, yeah, good, good question though. He unambiguously called it a genocide of the Kazakh people. And then they just backtracked all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, it's they sort of uh, solidified what they were going to build the nation on. And they said, okay, we're going to skip over all this recent complicated stuff and go straight back to the glory days of the Kazakh, you know, Khans and, and steppe warriors. So yeah, the, um, the, it's interesting to me that shift in the way that the state talks about it. And then fast forward to today, um, very recently, uh, I think it was in March, a Senate speaker said we, we shouldn't politicize this topic. That's very much kind of the stance they're taking now. It was a national tragedy. That's the term that they use, national tragedy, as if it's a, I don't know, natural disaster or something. Um, but we shouldn't politicize it. And that pretty clearly seems to be uh, a comment on Ukraine. But yeah, so back to what does genocide actually mean? So we'll see, you know, why some people think it shouldn't be called genocide, why some people think it should. So Raphael Lemkin, the Jewish lawyer who invented this term, had a broader concept in mind where he thought 
not only destruction of lives, but also destruction of culture will count as a genocide. But that did not make it into the legal definition. And in fact, the Soviet Union was pretty instrumental in that limiting. They, for example, got them to take political groups off of the list of people that could be targeted as a genocide where you can really see what their motivation there might have been because it would be much easier to build a case for them having committed genocide, especially in Ukraine, if political groups, classes, economic, you know, things like this was part of that list. But what is actually on the list? Alexander, do you, um, I think, let's see, there's based on ethnicity, religion, race. race. I feel like there's a fourth one. Uh, Nationality. Nationality, yeah, that's right. So yeah, according to the legal definition as it is now, I don't think uh, the Kazakh famine counts as a genocide. Do you, Alexander? Starting with the legal definition. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think this gets into complicated issues relating to who is a Kazakh and what is a Kazakh. Um, Okay. Tell us about that. uh, Well, I'm not the Kazakh in the room, <laughs> so I'm Well, but what do you mean by that statement, and then American? Um, <laughs> Tell I, us about being Kazakh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, Kazakh, from what I understand, uh, had a f- historic meaning of speakers of uh, related Kipchak dialects in uh, what is now Kazakhstan, and probably going into parts of what's now Astrakhan. Like, basically, all of the areas around Kazakhstan. Uh, and most of these people were nomadic. Most of the speakers of these dialects were some type of nomad. Uh, and the idea that there is a firm line here between ethnicity and way of life is, uh, it's a figment of uh, discourse. It's a line that didn't actually exist historically. Uh, if a Kazakh settled down, they were not necessarily any longer a Kazakh. If a Kazakh, if a, let's say, um, uh, someone Karakal Pakistan or an Uzbek or something like that uh, takes up a nomadic way of lifestyle, they become a Kazakh. I mean, their dialect shifts, um, the, the way they live shifts. And when you target this way of life so intensely uh, and you end up uh, killing one third of the entire population of this ethnic group, uh, I think that counts. I, I, I quite st- when you it, when your goal is the extermination of a way of life, and these people are determined by their way of life. I I don't see how it couldn't count. Well, so like according to the uh, like Raphael Lemkin's uh, original intention, yes. But since the legal definition really focuses on loss of life and targeting like the physical destruction and. I think that this is a terrible definition, by the way. I don't like the the way that it's worded at all. Not least because all of these categories, racial, religious, these are all like social constructs, so their meanings change anyway. Um, But yeah, say a little bit more about that. So why do you think that this counts as targeting the physical destruction of the group? Just the numbers. Uh, I mean, when, when, when you kill one third of a people and um, let's say one fifth leave uh, the Soviet Union, I, I think it's fairly clear that some kind of destruction was, uh, even if it wasn't necessarily the object of the policy, it was uh, uh, a, a side effect they were fine with. 
Mm-hmm. It's a bit problematic, I think, be- not not just because I might have a bit of a slightly different, more narrow uh, view on that, but if you, so the fact that the Kazakhs were once defining themselves or defined by others as primarily nomadic peoples, doesn't mean that that has remained static either. Because if you follow that argument too rigidly, then you would argue that Kazakhstan actually doesn't exist. Yeah. Because most Kazakhs now are sedentary. So Kazakhstan is now inhabited by non-Kazakhs, right? Because they're but no that, longer no. But, that but then I point. think most Kazakhs today identify themselves still as Kazakhs. The thing is that self-identification can change. So imagine hypothetically, right, that um, like there's a lot of countries in which peoples have disappeared. It's actually a very normal process. Like take France, like. Uh, 200 years ago, most French people would consider themselves peasants, not Frenchmen. There's this famous book, Peasants into Frenchmen. Um, we wouldn't consider that process very genocidal, but the state was bent on mm. destroying peripheral lifeways because they did not fit in the way of modern state building. That is a state in which everyone would give their life to one singular identity ruled by Paris. But no one is going to argue that... France is like built upon genocide unless we're going into colonial ventures, right? Mm. Um, I think perhaps the scary thing is that more if if we are if we t- are to take a sort of broader perspectives, most um, liberal nation states are based on some sense of mass transformation, including mass violence. Um, and I'm personally not very bent on you know the wording there, but a lot of like crime, like things that we would now find crimes or unethical acts against cultural lifeways um, have been committed. But the problem, I think, is even deeper, which is that we tend to want to separate culture and economy these days in our understanding today. But the separation of culture and economy, according to like slightly Marxist-leaning historians, is a consequence of capitalism. Like pri- these, The public-private spheres weren't so separate. And then you see that in nomadism, right? So if you destroy nomads by telling them to, to settle, are you attacking their culture or the economy? We can't answer that question because it's an, an anachronistic question in the first place. But that's also, thankfully, that's why lawyers don't write history books. Yeah. Yeah, but also I think that... I mean, that point that you were saying that this kind of... If we define ethnicity through lifestyle and this lifestyle doesn't exist, so thus the ethnicity doesn't exist, again, like it proves the point of this reinventing the nation. So you have to recreate your kind of identity, but again, you have to, you know, like Phoenix bird, you know, to like Mm -hmm. rise up from the ashes. So that's a problem here as well is that every national identity is not a monolith. Yeah. And I think. For instance, Kazakhs who today live in Xinjiang and are under persecution there have a national story that is almost unrelatable to uh, some upper class elite person eating caviar in Sultan. Yeah. So that's also a problem that I think, which is not to say that the word genocide shouldn't be used. And I think for me, that's I'm very not stuck up on the terms or anything. But I think what often gets lost in these discussions is that so we say as a caveat, oh, it's a social construct, but then we actually end up reifying national categories because yeah. we have lost ways of unthinking them. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, which is very difficult, and I'm not saying I can. Um, but that's a difficulty here as well. Like, which Kazakhs were these? Um, who did that exactly? 
was everyone getting settled in every region equally badly? Um, in what year? Like, so these things, they, they did vary, which is not, to, I mean, you could apply the same nuance to the Holocaust, which unfortunately a lot of people find problematic, which is sensitive, I understand. The same goes, for instance, for the Armenian genocide or a lot of events in the Caucasus where attempts to bring new ones are usually, um, you know, attacked as being seen as justifications. But I think the awful reality is that humans are very rationally capable of destroying others. And that I think, you know, so you do need to rationalize, but it doesn't mean that that's a good rationalization. It just means that we're all quite capable of, you know, being part of very murderous things. Yeah, I mean, like Alexander was saying earlier, um the yeah when when we think genocide holocaust kind of comes to mind and to me the the danger of um of these conversations revolving around the use of this word is that yeah like you're saying you you kind of try to fit things into boxes that they don't necessarily go into um and that's a danger that i see in kazakhstan um for example um, in Ukraine, the Holodomor, one reason why Kazakhstan hasn't really been um, understood by the rest of the world is that uh, to support the claim of a genocide for the Holodomor, I think they, they try to emphasize that, oh yeah, Stalin really had it out for ethnic Ukrainians. But of course, all of the other people who died, Kazakhs included, um, make that a kind of problematic statement. And I also need to add, they haven't been able to find any evidence that he wanted to destroy particular ethnic groups. Um, so that's another kind of, because unfortunately intentionality is also key uh, to making a legal, a genocide claim in the legal sense. So as you're trying to make a uniqueness claim, which has also happened in the case of the Holocaust a lot, and, and really say, oh yeah, it was, it was about ethnic Ukrainians, other groups, um, suffer from that. Um, so I, I, I think that this term kind of gets in the way of things more than it helps. If the idea of it is it's supposed to like bring attention to something, but that doesn't work. Like people mm. have now recognized mm. what's going on in Xinjiang as a genocide. Is it helping things? Not really. Like, I don't think this, this word yeah. is a, a helpful tool right now. In like IR terms, it relates a lot to securitization, which is ironic in the case of genocide because often the securitization so the construction of something as an existential threat to the state in this case often an ethnicity or a national group um, that can often propel mass acts of violence leading to mm -hmm. genocide but ironically and you see that in china today as well is that recognition of such processes tends to securitize further so mm -hmm. it brings further state anxieties especially in border populations one author, Tobin, wrote a book, came out last year, exactly about um, securitization in Northwest China. Um, also, I think, arguing this roughly, that that there's a lot of fear on the part of state that these border populations, um, sort of say, won't fit in. Um, and that they, they, they don't want to be part of the state project. And from sort of like minor concern, the more international actors start paying attention to it, the more it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where the state is like, see, they are trying to manipulate peoples that are cross-border populations that are uh, undermining our states and you see it exactly happening now in Xinjiang and I think it's very it's a very brutally fascinating case also because 
they insist on re-educating these people. If they really could, they could murder more. And instead, there's this re-education drive, which is like the very, mm. we see the very perverted way of securitization. And again, I think there the genocide question is perhaps not so important because of course, I do think there's a special category of like intentional mass murder where intent is not obviously... Based on a... I'm not going to tell historians who are looking for documents that prove intent, as they have done in the case of the Holocaust, Armenian Genocide and others. I'm not going to tell those historians that that is a useless exercise. But I would want to caution caution against saying people who whose entire livelihoods were destroyed, where such a document can be found, they're lesser victims or something, or just because one of their uncles also participated in the execution that you're... So, the, emo- the politics are different from the emotions, and I think that gets very clogged up, so to say. Um, and it's, again, with Xinjiang, like, yeah, I mean, if you get imprisoned and tortured in prison because you refuse to be re-educated into one life world, did you suffer less than if you were just immediately, yeah. uh, your, head cho- had your head chopped off? So I think there, a lot of the discussions get very heated, where maybe we need to be a bit more careful and also acknowledge that a lot of these things can be memorialized without some like without necessarily needing to get down to a fixed economy a victim perpetrator you can have re- respectful memorialization perhaps using the word democide and again there like it's really weird because a lot of these things like hinge upon contingencies contingencies like Stalin dying and Khrushchev not being so much of an asshole so you see that these small things change a lot in like later effect just because it wasn't so bad in the end, so to say, and because it's because of the rehabilitation, it's easy now to say, oh, I guess it wasn't genocide because it didn't work. But mm. that's also false because genocide doesn't have to be complete or near complete to yeah. be used. You, you hear that when you when you engage uh, for whatever terrible reason in your life um, in arguments with Turkish nationalists on Twitter, like, yeah. oh, if we'd have committed genocide, then there'd be no Armenians left. Yeah. Almost like a brag. Um, oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, but, um, yeah. Uh, say what you're going to say, but I would also love it if you gave, like, a couple sentences explanation of what you see as the usefulness of using, of this term. Like, what is it, what is it good for? So that's what I was uh, actually going to, to say, um, I think that it's useful to draw a dividing line between genocide as something like a political concept and genocide as a word used for commemoration and for mm-hmm. organizing populations. But um, genocide as, as an organizing principle of a community is something I, I've seen quite a bit of. A bit of. Um, you know, I, I follow Armenian politics closely and for the diaspora, uh, ever since I'd say around the mid '60s, even the word Armenian genocide has been very, very, very powerful, mm-hmm. and the recognition of the Armenian genocide, of uh, hopes of restitution eventually, mm-hmm. uh, of reparations, has been uh, just astonishingly powerful for the Armenian community. Okay, so for Kazakhstan, uh, and I would especially like to hear from Elmira. This term is being used, just as Alexander was describing, as kind of a nodal point for identity. And that is something that at least a lot of people 
feel is lacking. Uh, I often hear Kazakhs say things along the lines of, we don't have a national identity, we don't have an identity. And this is a curious thing to say, because having lived there, I've seen plenty of different identities, I would say. But it's interesting that um, people who feel the need for this uh, narrative to build something on uh, are drawn to Stalinist crimes, well, Soviet crimes against Kazakhs, but, but this one in particular. What do you think of that? And what do you think is the potential use of this word being used? I kind of agree with what Thais was saying that um, maybe the point is not just using the word or like kind of um, widening the spectrum of uh, what crimes you can list into the definition, but in general, let's say opening the discussion for that. So, so what what, I, what I'm seeing here now between four of us, it's kind of this attempt to discuss this whole kind of issues and try to maybe come up with new definition, with new understanding of these particular problems and things, crimes that were happening in this particular re region. So what I can say from, let's say, like living in Russia also for a while, this whole um, acknowledgement of uh, Soviet crime, like Stalinist crimes and crimes that happened during like Soviet times, especially Gulag, especially like uh, repressions and stuff like that, are not yet like addressed enough. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem within this whole, let's say, context of post-Soviet um, region. And I think it should be kind of talked about, particularly like in, in this context, like Sovietologists, whatever, like historians, lawyers, ethnic uh, experts and stuff like that, they should just gather and discuss it. And that is not happening in uh, in Russia, particularly now. Yeah. It's not happening in Kazakhstan also. And I think now the, the problem is that still in, let's say, our autocratic countries, because what is Ukraine, what is Georgia, and what is Kazakhstan are also politically different kind of mm -hmm. countries. So I would say that in Kazakhstan and in Russia, for example, there is still this, um, what it's called, like legacy of Soviet type of ruling, of mm -hmm. Soviet type of author uh, authoritarianism. And I think that doesn't help. And on that rather understated note, we will be finishing our discussion. Thanks for podcasting with me, Elvira. Thank you, and we would like to thank our guests, Thais Corston and Alexander Thatcher, for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed our episode, and thank you for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.